0: This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Laura Murphy Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Voice Ask Me Anything, a special series from Full Story where we take your questions about the Indigenous voice to Parliament and put them to people who have the answers. Today, the referendum date will be unveiled by the Prime Minister at a Yes campaign event in Adelaide. In this episode, we discuss why South Australia is pivotal to a successful Yes vote, and whether The Voice could prevent governments from creating racist legislation.
2: Aboriginal people want to know how it's going to help us in our ongoing fight against racial violence. Australia doesn't want to talk about that. It's Wednesday, the 30th of August.
1: Today, I'm joined by Guardian Australia's political reporter, Josh Butler. Welcome, Josh. Hi. I'm also joined by journalist and Dharambul and South Sea Islander woman, Dr. Amy McGuire. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Laura. And lastly, Yes Campaigner and Director for Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition, Thomas Mayo, who is a Karareg, Kukugal and erebam Torres Strait Islander man. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. So, Thomas, our first question is pretty simple. Uh, from one of our listeners. It's when does the Yes campaign start? We, we are talking just before the unveiling of the referendum date at an event in Adelaide. Do you see that as the beginning of the campaign proper? And are you hoping that it's going to be a significant turning point for the Yes campaign?
3: Yes, it's the beginning of campaign proper. Uh, we've been furiously working behind the scenes and, uh, and out there as well in public, uh, getting ready for this Moment uh, six weeks to uh, polling day, we have uh, close to thirty thousand volunteers, and there's been a lot of door knocking and leafleting already. Uh, you'll see more uh, advertisements, you know, paid media. Uh, you'll see a lot more intensity of uh, of getting out there and um, you know doing the door knocking, the phone banking as well.
1: The choice of Adelaide for this event is no accident. Noel Pearson said this week that South Australia is the most important state for the referendum. Josh, I want to go to you on that. Why is South Australia so important and what is a kind of potential path for success for both yes and no?
4: It's a good question, I guess, to give a sort of a quick civics lesson. The law says you need to win what's called a double majority for a change in a referendum. That means the Yes campaign, if they want the, the referendum to, to pass, they need to win a, a national majority of everyone in the whole country plus a majority of people in four of the six states. Mm. So that's the background. The, the current logic from people that um, I talk to in the campaigns, in federal politics, on the ground in different parts of the country, is that on a current state of play, New South Wales and Victoria – are the states more likely to to vote yes? Queensland is a state more likely to vote no. WA might be a state more likely to vote no. You look at those sort of numbers, that's 2-2. Two, two. That leaves Tasmania and South Australia as places where this referendum could be won or lost. Um, Tasmania is a state that might be more likely to vote yes as well. So if you if you take that, maybe it's 3-2 to yes at, the, at this stage, it comes out of South Australia. Yes has to win four states to to pass the referendum.
1: Thomas, it comes down to South Australia. What are you doing to win over South Australians?
4: Oh,
3: we're working really hard there. We've, um, you know, got many events. I'm going to do a tour of South Australia soon, uh, not just Adelaide, but uh, to regional towns. Uh, and so uh, we've got some great locals there, you know, local mob, uh, local allies that are doing a lot of work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be intense.
1: I want to move on to another listener question. They ask, do you think the need to sell the voice to the wider Australian population has weakened the potential power of the voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Amy, I want to go to you on this question. You have called the Uluru Statement a a compromise and you've raised concerns that the voice may be limited in its power. Why so?
2: Well, The Voice is always constitutionally conservative and a lot of Aboriginal people do support The Voice, but a lot of Aboriginal people are also very cynical of it. Um, and so there's a need, because there's a referendum coming up, because it's going to be non-Indigenous Australians who are casting the vote, um, obviously the Yes campaign is geared towards them, but there are still many critical questions still posed by mob and I think one of the most critical is that they want to see how it will affect their daily lives. And so I think there's this growing cynicism because the Yes campaign, I feel, has alienated some of that and quietened some of those concerns. And I think one of the big things if the voice is to pass, is that there's going to be um, this need for them to garner the confidence of Aboriginal Australia. You know, when they go and advise government um, on certain policy issues, you would hope that they would be able to um, garner confidence amongst Aboriginal communities who have felt so voiceless not just throughout the history of this country, but also in the constitutional reform debate.
1: Mm. Thomas, what do you say to that critique that the way that the Yes campaign has been run and the referendum has been run has silenced some Indigenous voices and Indigenous critique?
3: Yeah, I disagree that it's silenced um, some Indigenous voices. I think um, that uh, it's something that has come through an, an unprecedented consensus that was reached at Uluru you know, a, a rare opportunity to have the resources to have uh, an Indigenous-led and formulated process that, you know, led to the call for uh, a constitutionally enshrined voice. And um, as was said, uh, you know, we are sick of being voiceless. So um, this is about establishing a voice. And I think if you listen to any Indigenous person, they're sick of decisions being made about us without us. Uh, and the, when decisions are made genuinely with us, People that, uh, you know, our communities choose and can hold to account, not people that politicians choose to get the answers that they want or that they can be comfortable with, we get much better results.
1: Do you agree with the idea that there might be some mistrust from mob, that the voice will have to do more work after the referendum to, you know, bring communities on board as a proper representative voice for them?
3: Absolutely. Um, Any representative body needs to uh, be uh, a representative of what the people want. Of course, uh, myself and others will be advocating for it to do better. We'll be holding our representatives to account.
1: Amy, I want to come back to you on that idea of the voice as a compromise. I mean, were there more powerful ways of advancing Indigenous rights that were discarded because they wouldn't be popular with white Australia?
2: Well, I think um it's really interesting because it's been sold in two different ways to black Australians and to white Australians. So I don't believe that if it passes, it's going to be the end of re- racism. It's going to be um, a step towards reconciliation. I just don't think that because there is so much power within the states and we've seen that this week in Queensland with the Queensland government bypassing its Human Rights Act in order Mm. to allow children to be locked up indefinitely in watch houses. And we saw that in WA with the um, heritage laws recently. Um, And so the states currently have a lot of power. And so Aboriginal people want to know how it's going to help us in our ongoing fight against racial violence. Australia doesn't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about the origins of that violence. And so there is that silencing in play. And the other thing I just find very interesting is that the Yes campaign has accepted support and donations from mining companies, which have been so harmful to our people. Well, at the same time, we've seen the W eight Heritage Act scrapped, you know, and there was concerns over that, which directly related to you and Good.
1: Thomas, the Yes campaign has taken money from mining companies as part of its campaign. Do you see that as problematic and potentially? you know, sowing a bit more mistrust between Yes Campaign and some Indigenous communities.
3: We've got to succeed at this referendum. If it fails, uh, because we haven't had the resources required to see people understanding what they're voting for, um, then that is going to be far worse uh, than anything else. Uh, It would, uh, to continue to be voiceless, you know, it's just not good enough.
1: It's an interesting point that a lot of states are responsible for Indigenous affairs or some of the issues in Indigenous affairs that cause mob most harm in terms of incarceration, in terms of health. Do you see the voices um, being able to speak to states or stop some of that legislation that is, I
3: suppose, quite harmful, Thomas? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got the National Cabinet You've got uh, also coordination. I mean, these issues are uh, are not really state by state for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. These are issues that are common, you know, across uh, all of our communities across this entire country. And, you know, I think one of the important areas that it'll improve things is how it can raise awareness about programs that are failing, that are wasteful, that aren't reaching the people on the ground, that aren't making a, a difference to our communities, it could expose those and see those um, called out, really.
1: I think this conversation goes to another question that a listener has sent in. They ask, doesn't the Commonwealth already have stacks of experts and committees to give advice in Indigenous affairs? Precisely how would the voice differ in its approach? Josh, I'm wondering if you can break down that, that ecosystem of advice in Indigenous affairs that does already exist and how the voice would, would work differently.
4: Yes, the the government does have other committees. They have other ways of uh, taking advice or receiving advice or getting reviews done by any number of Commonwealth bodies. Not, not 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 even just Indigenous specific ones, but you know they could they could refer things off to the Law Reform Commission or to things like that for certain topics. But this would be a specific body that would be you know empowered through the Constitution to be a permanent advisory body. Um, as far as I know, there aren't bodies that, that exist like this in, in the same way that the voice is um, envisaged to, to work.
1: Mm. Amy, do you think there is a risk of the voice duplicating some of this advice that the government is already getting?
2: Oh, not at all. And I just wanted to provide some historical context. Like after the abolition of ATSIC, what happened in the vacuum around Indigenous um, representation was that the OIPC came in to fill that gap. So there was this white voice in Canberra, which represented the Howard government's own interests. Um, And so that is where that idea of having something constitutionally entrenched came about. And in the past, you know, you had the National Congress, which was put in place by Labor. And that was severely underfunded. So it was basically staffed before it even could, could even get up. And that had mm. quite a complicated model as well. So there is actually nothing in Parliament in which you can actually have a voice on a lot of these issues. And we look in past, like you just look at the NT intervention legislation, which was passed with one day consultation with Aboriginal groups. And that was only because they forced it. Um, there is literally nothing. So people out here saying, well, there's already committees, there's already, you know, even just like the Black Caucus or the Black, representation in parliament, they're there to support their own political parties. And mm-hmm. so we have had this absence and this gap since ATSIC, and yet governments still blame ATSIC. So I think that's the other thing we have to be careful of is that they are going to find a scapegoat and the voice will be that scapegoat. And so if the voice does happen, I think it's very important that the Voice garners the respect and the confidence of Aboriginal communities across the country, because it can be another disempowering effect if you have just the replication of the elites up the top, which we see, for example, in universities and everything like that. You have black representation, but they all get concentrated up the top. So if we Mm. are to have a voice, it has to be very important that you had that regional and that local representation.
1: Next, will Anthony Albanese be the Prime Minister who delivers on his promises to Indigenous people? Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute head to theguardian.com forward slash support Full Story. We've also linked to this on the Full Story page. Thanks. I want to move on to another listener question. They ask, is the voice a step towards or away from a treaty? Josh, I want to go to you on this quickly. I mean, what is the government's current stance and commitment to treaty?
4: Yes, the voice is the first part of the Uluru Statement, which calls also for truth and treaty, but I guess we are at stage one. Um, In terms of the government's stance on treaty, I mean, what they've said so far is that Basically, pointing out the treaty arrangements are already happening in several states around Australia. These things are already occurring without a lot of fuss, really. In a lot of cases, I mean, Queensland's state government has a policy called Path to Treaty. Victoria's First Peoples Assembly is working on, you know, their own sort of pathways to a treaty. Um, when the, the Prime Minister um, Albanese has been asked about this, he said, you know, the Uluru statement doesn't necessarily call for Commonwealth level treaties. Essentially, that there are things happening at state level and that's all they've happy to talk about at at this stage. So it is, I guess, still an open question.
1: Mm. Thomas, is leaving treaty up to the states good enough for you?
4: Focused on the voice. I mean,
3: we need to get this across the line. Um, I think the main thing to consider about treaty um, is not only that they're already underway in the states and the Northern Territory, but the other thing is that both Indigenous and non-Indigenous experts say that treaty is likely to take 30 or 40 years. And so on those priorities in the communities, uh, we're not interested in waiting that amount of time to address those issues that need, you know, immediate change.
1: Thomas, I understand you are focused on speaking about the voice and about the referendum, but, you know, the day after the referendum. Will you be advocating for a Commonwealth or federal-led treaty or are you happy with the state-led process?
3: I'm not commenting on that now. I'm focused on the voice. Uh, and, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm just staying strong on this is because the noise is loud enough about all sorts of things that this isn't about. It's 92 words that will go into the Constitution. It's simply recognising Indigenous people and giving us an ability to have a say, as was uh, stated earlier Amy, there is nothing of that type now, and we 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 direly need it.
1: Mm. Amy, is this a concern that you're hearing from mob that the federal government won't follow through with a treaty and that you know the voice could even set back
2: that effort? I think that's one of the main concerns, and I think that's replicated by a lot of mob who are calling for treaty first. I mean, because of this no campaign, because of the racist response, there's an environment in which Albanese can't come out and support treaty. But for mob, I think it would help if he did because I think that's the concern I have is that it is pushed further and further off the political agenda. Um, The processes in the states are quite different. In Queensland, it's just totally in shambles. This is a government that is locking up more and more black children and bypassing its Human Rights Act twice in a year to do so and in the same breath promising a treaty as if that's going to do anything.
1: Mm. This goes to another listener question who asks, do you think the Prime Minister's intentions pure. I mean, we've heard from people like the Deputy Opposition Leader, Susan Lee, calling the referendum Albanese's re-election vanity project. As someone who's been working closely with the the government, Thomas, what do you think of of that claim and of Albanese's intentions here in this referendum?
3: Look, this isn't Albanese's idea. It's not a Labor Party idea. Uh, You asked how the campaign was going, the first question, and I I really should have said the campaign has been going on for, you know, over 100 years. You know, statements and petitions that precede the Uluru Statement all called for a voice. Um, Almost all of them were dismissed and ignored. Uh, We considered those lessons of of those statements and petitions that called for a voice that were ignored – We considered the voices that we've established, you know, as Amy talked about, that have all been taken away because of a discomfort in listening to Indigenous people speaking to our interests and seeking to hold decision-makers to account when they harm us. Uh, This is a long campaign, and, yeah, it's intensifying in this last six weeks, but it's not Albanese's idea. It's not his vanity project. This has been a genuine call from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a voice that cannot be taken away at a political whim, uh, using our lives as a political football, establishing something permanent, uh, a platform for our children when they step up to leadership that they can step up onto that isn't going to be pulled from underneath them.
4: I do remember those criticisms from Susan Lee, and I, speaking personally, I thought they were a bit overblown. I mean, what's wrong with the legacy? I don't, I don't understand this idea of you know a politician, you know, that it's a bad thing mm. that you know there, there would be a legacy left behind. Like I've been in the room when he's made these announcements and had big press conferences. And you can see the passion on his face and he's crying. And I think it does weigh quite heavily on not just the prime minister, but a lot of people involved in the government, a lot of people involved in the Yes campaign, that the gravity of this situation, that it is, you know, a moment in time.
3: And and I'd like to make the point that it you know it's support across the political spectrum as well. This isn't just Labor. It's the Greens. It's the Teals. It's other independents. You know, Julian Lisa resigned pretty important roles, uh, shadow minister for Indigenous Australians and shadow Attorney General, to be able to campaign for this.
2: I don't think it matters so much the intentions of the prime ministers or politicians, because even if they have good intentions, we've seen what good intentions have done in the past. So I don't have a lot of confidence in the intentions of politicians or prime ministers, and I don't really care. Like Bob Hawke cried as he hung the Barunga statement and failed to deliver a treaty. Every single Prime Minister in this country is characterised by their failure, their abject failure to deliver justice to us as a peoples. And so I hope that with this referendum debate, we can judge Albanese on that as well.
1: So one listener has a question for you, Thomas. They ask, how can I explain yes to my no-boomer parents? What do you do when you come across, you know, no voters, older voters, undecided voters in the community? What do you say to them?
3: Well, I I think the most powerful thing is to... Let them know what this is. As I said, there's 92 words that form what the constitutional change is. And it's simply recognising that we have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage uh, and history that we should celebrate. So recognising the First Peoples and doing it in a practical way, uh, an advisory voice to improve health, education, employment um, I would say, ask them, you know, do you think that those differences in, you know, in life expectancy and and those awful outcomes in Aboriginal communities uh, and Torres Strait Islander communities, do you think that that should continue? You know, do you think that's because of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people themselves or do you think we can do better, you know, as a nation? And it begins right here and you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain for it. Just have that conversation. Um, leave it in a good place. You know, be respectful. I say this for anybody in their conversations. Provide people with the information. It's there in black and white recognition and listening. How could you say no to that?
1: Amy, what will you be voting on referendum day?
2: Oh, I'm still coming up. I mean, the problem is that I would never vote against a voice for black fellas to have a voice. I mean, I think when you look back at the 1967 referendum, there were certain communities that have had overwhelming no votes. Like I wouldn't want to side with what I see as the racists. You know what I mean? So I think it's just more about strategy from this point on. And I'm thinking more towards how we strategize as black fellas to continue to push for justice, regardless of what happens. You know what I mean? I think we still have those radical imaginaries we can still foster and we can push regardless of whatever happens in the next coming months. Thomas, Amy, Josh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Thank you.
1: That was journalist Amy McGuire, Yes campaigner Thomas Mayo and political reporter Josh Butler. Josh has written a piece about the path to victory for the Yes and No campaigns. was we'll linked to that on the Full Story page. Just a note on this episode, we had booked a leading No campaigner for this panel, but they had to pull out due to illness. We've extended that invitation to No campaigners for future episodes. This episode was produced by Phoebe McElwraith and Camilla Hannan, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer is Miles Matignoni. I'm Laura
0: murphy Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.